Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our 2020 podcast series. The Sydney Writers Festival acknowledges the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which these events take place. Additionally, I pay my respects to the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, who are the original inhabitants and owners of the land where I live, in the city now known as Perth, and which the Wajak have called Bolu for thousands of years. Hello. My name is Rashida Murphy, and I'm a first-generation immigrant woman from India. I'm also a writer of novels, short stories, essays, and poetry. I've worked as an educator all my life, for most of my life, in various roles at University, TAFE, and high school. And I currently work as a mentor and facilitator for emerging writers of color. It is my great pleasure to introduce and welcome Mirandi Rewa today. Mirandi's latest novel, Stone Sky Gold Mountain, has won the 2020 Queensland Literary Award for an outstanding work of fiction. Mirandi's previous novella, The Fish Girl, won Seizure's Viva La Novella Award and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Mirandi's writing credits include multiple awards and award shortlists in several prestigious competitions. And her writing has been described as fresh and vivid, sensitive and lyrical, with an unflinching feminist sensibility. Welcome, Mirandi, and please tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do when you're not writing. Oh, thank you, Rashida. Such kind words. Um, I also would like to pay my respects to the Turrbal and Yagara people on whose land I live and also the Western Yulanji people on whose land my book, Stone Sky, Gold Mountain, is set. Um, so I guess when I'm not writing, I am chasing around after my kids and cooking and try, well, trying to avoid cooking um, just and reading. I think that's that's what most of my days take up. Um, at the moment, I'm researching a new novel set in Indonesia. Um, my father's Chinese, but he um, is from Indonesia, um, which is why I love to write about, um, I guess, Asian women. Um, that's sort of where my interests lie. Um, and, yeah, so I, I started out writing crime fiction, um, set in the Victorian period, um, and that um, has the the protagonist is a Eurasian woman. So for that, actually, that was written as part of my PhD. I um, looked into the Asian population of London. I wanted to write back against, I guess, that sort of um, theme that you find in crime fiction of the sinister Oriental. I, I wanted to look at the actual. <laughs> yes. um, you know, actual, just your, your average Asian people who were living in Victorian London, and there weren't many. Um, mostly, they were travellers or sea from the sea, um, naval people who were staying in town. There were um, houses, especially for the Indian nannies who were brought over by the British. That sort of thing. So there was mm, a really yes. interesting sort of undercurrent of of um, other 
cultures in London, which I enjoyed poking around in. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I am really interested, Mirandi, with this um, <clears throat> idea of literary outrage. Um, and I'm going to quote probably your own words back at you. <laughs> um, you said in an interview a little while ago that when you wrote your novella, The Fish Girl, you felt a sense of outrage because of Somerset Maugham's story, <clears throat> The Four Dutchmen. Mm. And you were annoyed with the depiction of the unnamed Malay Trollope. Mm. And uh, your focus became that you would give this unnamed woman, oriental woman, a name and a voice. That's right. This um, resonates with me particularly because we, I guess we come from a background where colonial narratives were written about cultures we both have affiliations with. And I find a similar sense of outrage when I read Rudyard Kipling, for example, and mm. Ian Forster. So can you uh, speak a little bit more about this? How do we do more than simply rewrite, revise, or write back to the center and all those things which, you know, post-colonial literature is supposed to do? But we do more than that. You do more than that. And how do you do that revoicing and recentering of the silenced narratives, starting with that, you know, sense of outrage that you mentioned? Mm. Um, I guess for the fish girl, what I did specifically was I took it from her, the, the story, I followed the original short story, but it was from her point of view because I really wanted to see um, why or how she you know, one facet of Mina, one one version, sorry, of Mina, um, how she could have found herself in that situation. Um, I think going back to the first part of your question, I think how maybe I think you can rewrite or recenter things now isn't so much, um, re you know, writing back to a centre in the past, like a post-colonial, in a post-colonial sense, what I try to do is um, actually I'm writing back to the centre now. I think that's what you need to do. So it's historical fiction, but actually you're writing back to um, situations to do with gender or racism or whatever now. That's actually where I might find my outrage now <laughs> um, is, is, you know, in that sort of area, that it's not, that it's not dated. You know, and like you said, it's fair enough to just write back to something in the past and maybe write some wrongs. I think there's something to be said for that too. But also I think you can go that next step and tie it into what is still going on. And even with the fish girl, like I wrote about her, but actually I wanted it to also reflect on women who are still being trafficked, you know. They still are, and especially in that Southeast Asian area. So um, I think the you know, if you if you want to rewrite it maybe in a meaningful way is to look at look at how we live now too. Yeah. And look yeah. to the future as well and how yeah. you want it to be, you know. 
Yeah. yeah, and and um, you do respond as a modern woman. You you respond as you are now. You know, you. I respond as I would now, but I try very hard that my characters don't respond like I would now, unless unless there's backing for it. Um, but otherwise, I don't think that's helpful either. I don't think it's helpful to be prescient. I, I prefer my. I think just in in your characters behaving like they might have back then. It's shocking enough that you are actually saying something, you know. You don't have to have them be present, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as a follow-on from that, I saw The Painted Veil, the movie, <laughs> recently, another more movie. And somehow it was even more distasteful to see it visually depicted, to see the white woman carried on the backs of the Chinese men, to see the young Chinese woman with this leery old white guy. You know, when you're reading, your your mind and your imagination tells you all that, and then there it is in front of you. And it it was just, I mean, so distasteful. And that brings me to the next question which I want to ask you, which is, can we be retrospectively outraged? <laughs> We're often told, you know, the purpose of literature is to look at it in context and people, you know, men like Moore and Kipling were writing in a particular era mm. and we are now getting upset about it. So mm. we are told that we are being too critical, reading it wrong. That's interesting because I think... Having gone through, because I had to give it some thought when I wrote The Fish Girl, um, it's interesting because a lot of things that I would read that don't touch upon me and my life to do with, um, say, another culture or race or, um, you know, and you can actually look at these old books and go, oh, well, that's how they were then. Oh, that was the context then. And you can, you know, hover over it and you know, read it in that context. And I, I think even before I've I've taught at uni and sort of we were doing a particular book and I was like, you know, but you got to remember the context of when he wrote it. Is outra- and it was outrageous, but also remember the context. And actually he's written it quite well given the context, you know. <laughs> but and what I realised with The Fish Girl was because I'd written, obviously I'd read a lot, you know, because my first novels were set in the Victorian period in, in England, I'd a lot of what I've written, even as a as a woman who's grown up in Australia, a lot of what I've written is in that Western context. Um, so I am hardened to it anyway. I think what happened was, you know, like I've said before, you know, because I am a woman, being brought up feminist, and then to read about this this hussy or this trollop who was from maybe a similar background to me or or say could have been uh, an ancestor. Yes, you know what I mean yes. when you're looking at. Yes. I know my dad finds <laughs> my dad finds um, those tragic Chinese movies about how you know about concubines and you know when they end tragically. He just can't watch them because he always thinks that you know well they're that could be my sister or my mother. You know, like um, so. I think that's what it was with the fish girl. It was more personal. So I guess what I'm saying is I think retrospectively I can I can see how people might think, oh, but it's a context and that maybe somebody else would watch The Painted Veil 
and not be offended. Like they would just be, they would just think of it as, as oh, yeah, there's another movie that's, that's I love these type of films. Yes. Look at the beautiful settings and it's so gorgeous and sumptuous, you know, like because they just don't have the context of seeing it that you or I might have, you know. Yeah. So, and I think maybe it's, so that's why I like to write about it, I guess, and maybe you catch some new readers along the way. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that the, the white saviour, you know, in the Painted Veil, for example, the white saviour, you know, we have to have a white doctor that goes and saves the natives because they wouldn't be able to do it on their own. And I mean, it's just, I mean, yeah, and there's just so many movies from the past where, you know, that, you know, like the one white warrior saves all the yes, Asian warriors yes, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but hopefully that's becoming less. I think I think it's been called out a lot more. I think that is actually um, its place. The place is to call that context out because it, it's, you know, they might think it's retrospective, but the point is up until today it's still going on. So yeah. Yeah. Um, it continues to be something that does need to be pulled, you know, pulled apart. Yeah. I'd also like your thoughts on a relatively recent news item. Um, as someone who has won a number of literary prizes, um, the Booker Prize, uh, the shortlist recently made headlines, for being, uh, for excluding, if you like, the notable Hilary Mantel, who was widely expected to scoop the, you know, prize third time in a row for her Cromwell trilogy. And um, I just found it really interesting, the level of lament that ensued online because a wonderful white writer had been sidelined because she was white because somehow in this time that we are living through, the, with the Black Lives Matter, with, you know, own voices matter, it's somehow become our moment as people of color. And being white, you, you can actually uh, miraculously be too white to win. And I just found that extraordinary because you know how hard you've worked to write and be published and then win a prize. It, there, was, there were no guarantees. There weren't people holding doors open for you to walk through. Um, yeah. So what, what uh, do you have to say about this wild, widely held belief that somehow writers of color win prizes because we are writers of color rather than the talent that is required to get us across the line? Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Not just that it's, um, I guess if we're talking numbers, I mean, it is, like you said, it's it's just hard to get across the line just in pure, pure, pure numbers. Um, I think what was interesting with um, the judges this year, I, I don't think I've really looked into judges from past years, I have to say, but um, it there was a diversity in the judges themselves. And I, I think it's, Interesting. That's what I love about um, you know different competitions that who do have that do have different um, judges that they they see different strengths in different books and and I think it's it's just a bit unfair on you know on the on the shortlist 
losing some of the attention on their lovely works um, because of this this silly fuss. It's just silly. Um, but also, but I think it's like, I th- I, but I do commend, you know, the, the diversity and the judges and because I think they are going to choose differently. They are coming from different contexts and different places and, and you know, and different tastes of what they um, would choose. Um, and I think I think there's a place for that like there was a place for Stella, you know, the Stella Prize several years ago, you know, and it did open up. It did. It, it I mean, the numbers show it. It opened up a lot of opportunities um, and exposure for female or, you know, non-binary writers. So um, hopefully, hopefully this sort of shake-up might do the same too in the booker. Um, I mean, and they've already had that shake-up with um, Americans in in the in the mix. I mean, that that sort of um, anyway. There's always going to be a fuss. There's always going to be a fuss. And I and I did read Hilary Mantel's um, what she had to say, and she and you know, rightfully so, she was disappointed. Like, why wouldn't you be disappointed? Um, but I thought she she was quite gracious about it, and it was others lamenting who were probably worried about their future book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and, and I really, really like that point you made about um, making a fuss over a single white writer who didn't get shortlisted has taken away from the ones who were. So the, yeah, instead it has of, taken attention away. You know, yeah. instead of applauding a diverse shortlist and saying, hey, this is fabulous, you know, um, look, we're going to be exposed to a whole bunch of voices we might never have come across had it not been for the shortlist. But instead, we are so focused on trying to find out why, you know, she didn't make it for the third time that we've kind of lost that a bit. Which She probably doesn't like the exposure either. <laughs> she probably, you know, the attention either. So um, anyway, what happens in the judging room? <laughs> <laughs> Mirandi, I'd like us to go into your the world of your novel and stay there for a while. Uh, Stone Sky, Gold Mountain. There were so many things that I accepted as a natural way of storytelling that I had to pause and go back to the novel when I read a review which singled out the fabulous, magic realist manner in which the story was told. I didn't actually notice it because it felt as, you know, it didn't automatically register in the way that um, something else that is really using that trope to make a point would register. And even though I noted all of the elements, you know, the centering of the margin, the rich inner life of your precarious characters, the burdens that they carry on their back, you know, the that beautiful boy, uh, you know, carrying his wife, uh, Sharon, on his back. And so was that a deliberate novelistic choice or was that simply what the story needed, demanded almost? Ah, uh, I, because I did have a bit of an element of it too in the fish girl with the um, sea goddess. And um, what happened is when I was writing Lai Yue, I read a 
um, article in the New Yorker about, and it was a it was a fraud that was you know like a scam going on right you know like right now in New York um, about ghost brides, and it was a way of conning um, women out of money or their jewellery by saying, you know, we need to rid your son of this ghost bride or else, you know, he'll die. And and I just thought, well, and then I looked into it, obviously, and I just thought, well, obviously they're still scamming people with it. Um, and so there's obviously still belief in it. And also, um, you know, coming from the Indonesian and Chinese background, there is a certain amount of, I guess, spiritualism that you just take for granted in life. Like it's not something like we don't go around going, oh, I believe in ghosts or, you know, whatever, or spirits and the mists, you know. But then on the other hand, you know, my family or my dad, they do, they do get creeped out in places and they do have stories. Um, so I, I, part of it was also um, just natural to me that that they would believe in this spirit world. That was just natural to me. Um, so I thought that was just um, a good way of, I guess, showing, and I don't even know myself, I wrote it, I think the thing to do is write it like it is real anyway. So I wrote it as Laia believes and um, it's up to the reader to to decide on what they believe. Um, but I just um, I just loved the idea of of Shan and also that it kept him. I guess it was showing how he was feeling as well. It was it was yeah. I didn't really, I didn't, sorry, I didn't really dissect how or why I went into it. I just did and it just, it was, it worked and I enjoyed writing um, those two characters. Yeah. yeah. And I think as a reader, that's what I got out of it, that it was such a natural part of the story itself and the way the story unfolded that I didn't really um, go back and you know, look for the technical yeah. devices and the tropes no. and things like I that. I wouldn't have even labelled it myself. It was just what it was. And it's the same with the Sea Queen, um, you know, in that part of the coast in Indonesia, they have a hotel room um, set up to, to that Ocean Queen. It's just, it's just, it just is, I think. So um, that's how I like to write it. Yeah, and I, um, I was thinking that, um, one of my grandmothers, I I used to have this sort of, you know, there were stories of jinns constantly. And I remember one of my grandmothers telling me not to stand under a particular tree at seven in the evening. She was really specific about that. Yeah, you know, the wow. jinn will come and get you at wow. seven in the evening. And it terrified the bejesus out of us as yeah, children. It would. <laughs> you know, like it was just a tree. But it became the gin tree in our imagination. You know, growing up, it was the gin tree. And she was serious. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, deadly. yeah, yeah. That's like my yeah. dad. He's got yeah. stories and they're serious, mm. like serious. Mm. Because even um, I think, I think one of his ears is pierced. And the story is so, you know, because ghosts wanted little boy babies, not girl ones. So, <laughs> so they pierce his ears so he looks like a girl because nobody's going to want a girl, huh? <laughs> Oh, that's fabulous. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, because I, I mm. do, you know, I get that, that sort of, the, that feeling that the ancestors are there in the story, in, in the world that you create. It mm. just feels like those people in that time would be speaking to dead wives yes. and, yes. you know, grannies and what have you. Mm. Definitely. To go further into your 1870s Northern Queensland gold rush um, era, uh, let's talk about Ying and Lai Yu. And um, I noticed an unexpectedly Shakespearean element in the, you know, girl who dresses as a boy in order oh, to survive. Wow. I've never thought of that. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, she did it, didn't she? The Twelfth yes. Month. <laughs> so this brings me to my question of asking you about your literary influences. Who do you love and who do you love to hate? <laughs> oh, I should have thought this through. Um, it always surprises me when I look at my um, bookcase when I'm looking for a book, but I do have most of Margaret Atwood's there, like, you know, and she's she's got a, she's got a big backlog. Um, and so I, you know, and I, I would definitely say Margaret Atwood. Um, oh, gosh, it's so varied. I used to love, actually, you know, talking magic realism, I used to, when I was much younger, I used to love Marquez and like Isabel Lende and yes. oh you know Amy Tan and all those ones oh, from yeah. back in when was that yeah. what, 90s? 90s and um yeah. De Bernier's and all of them and I used to just love crime fiction too so I would always I would um piece it out so I'd have I'd write a read a crime novel and then I'd read a literary novel and then I'd read a crime novel and then I'd read a literary novel that's how I I would always work out my books um at the moment I'm reading the latest seizure Viva la novellas that just won and I've read one so far it's called The Last Sonata and it was just beautiful it was so skillfully written and put together um so I would recommend that and at the moment I'm also reading Hamnet which is beautiful so fabulous oh I'm going to look out for it so I wouldn't say necessarily historical fictions although when I think about it two books that I did love over the last few years was I'm terrible at I'm terrible at um titles but I I liked Sebastian Barry's not this last one but the one before the um Days Without End and um All the Light We Cannot See oh Um, yes yeah I really loved that one so I guess um I do I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of say usually that I'm a i am only read historical fiction because I don't, but um, but some of my favourites are historical fiction, yes. There's just so much Australian fiction coming out this year that's just brilliant, you know, and so many young, exciting writers, you know, with really beautiful prose and fresh ideas. Yeah, we're very, we're very lucky this year. Mm. And what annoys you? What, what really ticks you off? You In know? fiction? Yes. <laughs> oh, I guess poorly written fiction. I mean, that that kind of, it's just boring. It's just boring. One thing I don't like, I guess, in historical fiction is, like I was saying before, is prescience, is that character who is too feminist or too, uh, you know, aware, too woke, you know, for their time. That's That's a bit irritating in fiction. 
Well, I, I wouldn't say I can think of anything that's irritated me because I guess maybe I would avoid that book. I think mm-hmm. I think um, if I thought it was the irritating types of books, I'd probably just steer clear <laughs> off anyway. Um, yeah, and, and I guess I'm also thinking about the way that you're, you know, when you, when you write, your characters uh, are firmly in the centre of the narrative. And I don't get a sense that you have them as props to serve the narrative. And I've started noticing that a lot. I notice that especially the so-called exotic characters in a white narrative tend to be props. Mm. They prop up the narrative rather than, you know, serve a specific purpose like your characters do. You know, everybody uh, whether it's Ying or Laiyu or Shan, who's such a strong presence without, while she's in absence, um, they, none of them are props, even the marginalized ones, even the ones that the already marginalized characters see through, you know, the, the Aboriginal characters. So the complicity that you unpack in that narrative about the Chinese uh, miners allying themselves and aligning themselves with white people because, you know, they have to. So that would have been a deliberate choice that you, you wanted to explore that um, it was, almost definitely. racism, and, you know, because it was. It, there was several levels Absolutely. of racism and Absolutely. layered racism. Yeah, it was... It was um, on purpose and I did originally you know I don't I don't love the novels a lot of novels written by Australian writers white Australian writers have their I think they're they're trying to say the right thing of course you know that it you know it was wrong what happened to Aboriginal people here in Australia but I guess they're um what happens is their characters are, you know, but it, it wasn't my character. My character tried to help them or my character, you know, was the good one or something like that. <laughs> and there was a time that I did think maybe uh, Lai Ye would sit the violence out, like he would sit out mm-hmm. of it and mm-hmm. that would be saying something. So, you know, um, but I realised... On, on a big scale, on the biggest scale, um, that the Chinese, you know, just being there in such numbers, you know, up to 20,000 people, um, were already complicit in um, the displacement and the deaths of the Aboriginal people there, the Yalanji people. Um, so I guess I did want to show... Um, so I didn't want him to sit it out. I thought that was that was sort of being, um, I guess, soft on myself and the reader by having him sit it out, you know. Also, um, actually somebody was just saying a week or two ago that they thought maybe that part was um, far-fetched because the Chinese and the Aboriginal people were um, interrelated to some degree, but but they weren't in that area at that time. So when I when I consulted with the um, Western Yolanji people, the CEO, I had two questions for him. I said, "Can I 
do you mind if I write about the violence against your people? And he said, you should. And the second question I asked him was, do you mind if I portray um, how scared the Chinese were of your people? And he laughed about it because, I mean, it was well known that they were, they were terrified because, you know, the Western Yilanji people fought for their, for their land, you know. Um, so I don't think, and I mean, there were massacres. So, I mean, nothing was yes, far-fetched yes. about it. Um, so I just, I didn't think it was fair that he would sit it out anyway. I think there were alliances obviously made um, and there were, even if they weren't named, you know, and there would have been a hierarchy in the racism. And there was a hierarchy in that racism. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, definitely. For a long time. I mean, it's just disgraceful. So, um, so I did want to unpack that, but I think the other important thing for me, of course, was, um, that I didn't want to appropriate any voices. So I had to really, um, build parameters for myself in this novel because I didn't, you know, um, what happened to the Kuguyalanji people is not my story to tell. And there are, Aboriginal writers at the moment writing about it, like, you know, that's not my story to tell. So my parameters I gave myself were that I would write about what did happen. I took some, say, some um, primary sources, some accounts, some personal accounts of what some white, uh, white diggers saw, and I skewed it to be from my Chinese character's point of view. That's, so what my parameters were, I tried to show what happened, but through their eyes. Um, and it just, it, it works so beautifully in context, you know. Uh, it's a really fraught relationship that you portray um, between those uh, different groups of people. And I'm wondering about your own fraught relationship with research and with the writing. So that there would have been times when doing the research you would have been overcome. You know, oh, the archives. The archives would have haunted you. <laughs> when you were when you were um when you wrote that lovely uh review of my book, you um what was the word you used? You said it was unflinching. And all I could think was, oh my god, there was so much flinching. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, when I um because originally it was supposed to be a story about a Originally, it was supposed to be a love relationship between, it's sort of an interracial love story between um, a Chinese boy and a white Australian girl. And then I wanted to write about a girl, and that became Ying. And um, but by the time I decided on writing about the North Queensland area, and then looked into that research, I realised I couldn't, I couldn't write it without being in that context. That sort of even even more heavily racist context than what I was even going to go with. Um, so um, I would say most of my preoccupation writing this novel was trying to get those angles right in the novel, given given what's been written before, how it's been portrayed, um, and where those views came from. Um, where I wanted my book to sit, um, yeah, I gave it a lot of thought how I was going to um, write this novel, yeah. So it was a lot of flinching, Rashida. 
No, when I said, um, you know, you cast your unflinching eye on clearly complex racial uh, relationships, I didn't mean that you didn't flinch. Oh, I, I just know. meant yes, that, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I no, was, it was in a lovely, awe. It was a lovely comment. <laughs> I was in awe of how well you managed that, you know, because I, I hate using the word brave in relation to writing, so I won't use that. But there is um, unflinching, there's that word again, courage, in looking at something that you know is going to haunt you, but you do it anyway. You know, that's what I meant. <laughs> and I think, yes, I think also, oh, no, I loved it. I loved it. As you, as you can see, I've remembered it. Um, but I think also, I think maybe one of, I guess I just wanted it to be read Oh, I don't know how I don't know how to explain it, but I didn't. I hoped it was going to be read in in the spirit I I wrote it in. I guess, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, no, I I felt very seen when you wrote <laughs> <laughs> what you did. Um, oh, that was going to be one of my questions. You know, how do you want your novel to be read in 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 context and um, that sort of thing? I was thinking about it because I thought. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, the way I've been banging on, it probably makes the novel sound didactic, but I, I don't want it to be preacherish or anything. If anything, I guess, and probably what most historical writers want is for their work to be uh, illuminating, you know, that it's that it's maybe shifting how some people are seeing history or now or whatever, just in some way um, they might feel or read something new? Well, you know? it certainly taught mm. me something. I mean, I mm. didn't know the depth of that history at all. You know, it was kind of um, coming here as an immigrant, you, you sort of be, become un, you become aware over time of uh, how many layers of privilege and marginality exist in each culture you interact with. But the history of that culture uh, remains a mystery unless you go looking really hard. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading about you, Rashida. You were saying when you first came here, you didn't really know about how, I think it was the White Australia policy, policy that it was still going until like yes, so the 70s, late in the day. Yeah, we, we <laughs> came, yeah, we came about uh, five years or so after the policy finished. So it was it was very confronting to suddenly find yourself a marginalized person simply because of the color of your skin. It is strange. I, I, you know. Well, yeah. My dad came in the 60s. Um and I think he he felt a bit adventurous actually. Um but yeah, it's funny. I guess I guess um because I was born here, I always felt my skin was a different colour, <laughs> you know, because I think we're a lot more multicultural now than when I was little. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, but I think he was even telling me once about how he was aware when he came here that Aboriginal people didn't have rights that he had as a mm. new nation yeah. here, you know. Yeah, it was yes. just shocking, shocking. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you grew up in a mixed-race um, family and, I live in a mixed-race family and 
it's still extraordinary to me. You know, my kids are mixed race and they sort of, and they've married people who don't look like themselves either. <laughs> and so for me, that's family. When I yes. see all the different yes. shades of brown yeah. and white in yeah. my own family, it's family. But yeah. it's interesting that Australia doesn't say it that way still. Yeah. Well, yeah. It is, it's amazing sometimes when I realise there are huge pockets of Australia who don't want it to be like that, you know. Yeah, that is, it's, it's funny. Mm. Mm. We were once asked if we'd adopted the kids. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, yes, they were so not just our kids but because our kids have, as, as I've said, have married people that don't look like them. So their partners are also very different looking. And someone wanted to know if, you know, we'd adopted them. <laughs> no, we, we birthed them instead. <laughs> um, I have another 25 questions to ask you. Oh, my gosh. But we won't be able to. No, no. It was exactly what I was hoping for. So I'm going to, because it's been... Another thing that really um, interested me about the naming, I love names in novels. And um, you're Miriam. Is she named for Merriam Webster, who wrote the dictionary? Oh, that would be a lovely idea. <laughs> Sorry, I can see you're going to be disappointed. Um, no, what happened is um, maybe even originally her name was Miriam. And then I went to, I was in, oh, where was I? Somewhere out near Miles. I've forgotten the name of this little pretty town. And we went for a walk in the um, graveyard. And there were about three from this same time, the 1860s, 1870s, there were about three Merriams and it was spelt that way. And I know at the first people were like, are you sure you want to stick with Merriam? Like, because it's unusual, but I was like, but there were three there, you know, back in the day. So, um, and yeah, they were very sort of British Irish names, the, the surnames. It wasn't like something brought somewhere from somewhere exotic. Um, yeah. So I, I just really liked the idea of naming her Merriam. And she is Miriam now. <laughs> yeah, Miriam. And I just liked it because it was so fabulous, the thought that Miriam and Ying don't even have a language in common. And if she had been actually named after a woman who wrote a dictionary, that would have been so Aww. fabulous. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll steal that. <laughs> yeah, just say that's what she did. Yeah, that's what I will. <laughs> I'm just going quickly through what I wanted to do. Oh, what are you working on next? I know you said Ooh. a little bit, and I know a lot of writers don't like to reveal before the reveal, oh. but yeah, is I there anything don't. you'd like to say in a roundabout way about what you're working on? Um, yeah. I The next novel, well, one novel I'm working on, which is I have kind of started it, but it'll probably be after the first novel, um, is I wanted to write some interconnecting stories about a Chinese, um, a Eurasian family from like the 1860s, so a Chinese man who marries a, 
an Irish woman. And it's interconnecting stories covering the next 150 years. So I wanted it to be like Thea Astley's It's Raining in Mango. Oh, yeah. Um, that, yeah, that kind of um, feel. Um, and that sort of grew, I guess, from all the research I did into Stone Sky Gold Mountain, you know, because I've always found it so, I guess because I'm Eurasian, I've always found it so interesting when I meet somebody who appears to be, you know, white Australian and and I um and they go, Oh, yeah, my great great granddad is Chinese, you know, like from Mariba or somewhere. You know, I just yeah. always find that really fascinating because I wonder how that couple back in the eighteen sixties or whatever got together, like, you know, against maybe racism or what other people thought or and then many married and they actually just had kids and I've read about one woman um, who married a Chinese man and she wrote, she had something like 10 kids and she wrote um, their a memoir. She wrote a memoir. This is all in the 18, late 1800s. And not once in the memoir does she mention about the Chinese-ness of her husband and the kids. You know, that just wasn't referred to in her journal at all, which is interesting. I, you know, it's an in- interesting, interesting thing to sort of leave out. But anyway, so that was the other book. And but first, I think I'm writing. I'm um, a book set in Indonesia, but it's just before the Japanese invade in World War Two, so the early forties, and it's um, about a Eurasian family and a Dutch man, and just before they have to. Um, evacuate to Australia actually so that's my next novel hopefully hopefully <laughs> yes yes please um I'm sure it's more than hope that goes into that. <laughs> a lot of skill <laughs> <laughs> well we'll see you're you're off to a writers and uh, writers festival tomorrow is that right yes I am I'm up to the northern territory one yeah how exciting it is <laughs> I feel just, in these strange times to be able to I say know. something like that is you know I know even the Indonesian fabulous. novel and and the Irish component of the other one this year I wanted you know I was supposed to do a residency in Ireland and maybe see you know go back to Indonesia with my dad to the area that my book is set which is set in his hometown um but of course all of that is off the table and I only realised last night that back in February I bought a year's worth of travel insurance. Oh. <laughs> what about it? What a COVID idiot. <laughs> Not going anywhere. But anyway, so tomorrow I'm, I'm very pleased, very chuffed to be going up to the Northern Territory Writers' Festival. Well, mm. well done and I hope you have a brilliant festival. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had so much more to say and ask you. So we, we're going to have to do it again, you know, offline, privately, because <laughs> I have Anytime. to pick your brains. <laughs> Anytime. Um, Stone Sky Gold Mountain is available now at all good bookstores, and I recommend that everyone should go out and get a copy. Buy a copy if you haven't already. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe to and rate our channel.